This podcast was sponsored by Baba Sobers Wealth Management at UBS Financial Services. Baba Sobers Wealth Management works with physicians, medical practices, and hospitals, providing comprehensive wealth management services for individuals and institutions. Visit our website at advisors.ubs.com forward slash Baba Sobers WM. We're members of FINRA and SIPC. FirstNet, built with AT&T, is the only nationwide wireless network built with and for emergency responders, including Arizona physicians, nurses, and other critical staff. FirstNet subscribers get a great mobile experience with added security and peace of mind. Visit firstnet.com to learn more. So if this country, from a government point of view, wants to make healthcare work, the best thing for them to do would be to say, let's apply the corporate model to healthcare, and we will have a system where you'll have competition on a vertical basis instead of on a horizontal basis. In other words, that dollar won't be going through four or five different filters before it gets to the care you receive. It'll be one company who's responsible, you pay them, and they provide you with their care. Hi, and welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Dr. Robert Orford, MD, MPH. He is now retired. Before his retirement, Dr. Orford was working at the Mayo Clinic Arizona, where he also served as chair of the Division of Preventive Occupational Aerospace Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine. Dr. Orford, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was wondering if you wanted to share anything else about your background that pertains to uh, organized medicine. We know that you were the 120th president of the Arizona Medical Association. You've been a longtime member of Maricopa County Medical Society, and you're deeply involved with other issues like aerospace medicine. So anything else that you want to highlight now? I've had a long career, and uh, the first 10 years of my career were actually in healthcare administration. Uh, initially working in Canada, I'm Canadian, uh, with the government of Alberta. And I uh, started there in occupational health, but became the chair of their uh, provincial board of health. And two or three years after that, became what was called the deputy minister of the department responsible for public health. So that would be similar to the U.S. physicians that, that run the public health system. So I really have a good idea of both the Canadian and the American healthcare system. Last uh, two years ago now, I was in England for a year. Mayo Clinic opened a clinic there, and I was one of two Mayo Clinic physicians that went over to open that clinic. So that gave me a good insight into the National Health Service and how that works as well. I also grew up partly as a child in, in the UK uh, for about four years. Uh, my dad was in the military, and uh, so I was assigned over there. So uh, I have a pretty good understanding uh, beyond the US borders of how healthcare systems work. So I think. That was part of the genesis for that article I wrote for the um, Arizona Medical Association uh, on the future of health care, because I could see where things were possibly going and uh, wanted to make a statement as to where I thought things were going to go. Thank you so much. Thanks for the background. And for all the listeners, we're going to dive into a discussion that is 10 years later. Dr. Orford is referring to an article that was published in the spring 2012 issue of Arizona Medicine entitled, as you mentioned, The Future of U.S. Healthcare. And in that article, two pages, you lay out four possible futures for U.S. healthcare. Uh, you say only one of which is likely to happen. 
And the four that I'd like to share with the listeners now included status quo, second option being single payer system, which is what the Canadian system use, uses, a third option, split public private model, something like Germany, for example. And the fourth option that you looked at was uh, more corporate uh, corporatization of healthcare. Anything else that you want to say about those four options generally before we talk about the one that has come to fruition? Sure. Uh, I think that yeah, healthcare is very complex. In fact, the healthcare industry is one of the largest, if not the largest industries in this country, and it has many different moving parts. I did want to say something about the financing of, of healthcare because with the complexity that exists now, one of the real problems is that we've got your money as a payer for your health insurance going through a series of filters which you have no control over and which are controlled by people who are anxious to take your money from you and use it for not necessarily what you want them to use it for, but for other things. And uh, you finally get uh, your money's worth eventually when it gets through that system. Uh, but it, it takes a long time to get through the system. And in the process, it probably loses about 30 or 40% of its value. So the estimate is that this country at the moment spends about a trillion dollars a year more uh, than we need to be spending on uh, healthcare. And I think any of the solutions, apart from the status quo that, I, that you just mentioned, would probably help to bring us there. If I can speak a little bit further about that, uh, in terms of who those players are uh, between your dollar going in as an insurance client and you're getting your care, there's a, a long distance between the delivery of care and where that money, the funded came from. And I was reading just today a report that came out last week from Deloitte called uh, The Future of Healthcare, which is mainly dealing with the United States. And in it, they state, the US healthcare system is a collection of disconnected components, health plans, hospital systems, pharmaceutical companies, and medical device manufacturers, period. Where's the provider in that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really so top focused. That's the way that businesses tend to look at this. We have hospitals, clinics, some private practice, small businesses, in other words. But then we've got the equipment manufacturers, the device manufacturers, big pharma. We've got the information technology people, electronic medical records, and so on. Before you get to the physicians and the nurse, nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs and so on that actually provide the care. And finally, to the patient who's you at the, at the very bottom of that, that section of, of filters uh, or the stream of filters. So this is a, a problem that we've got to deal with. So if I could briefly review the, the first three options. The status quo, as I just said, I don't think is going to work in the longer term. It's very expensive. It's very inefficient. There's too many players. The second option was for the single payer system. And I am Canadian. And as I said before, I've been a, a key player in, in that system. But I want to make it clear that I'm not advocating a universal single payer healthcare system for the United States. Because uh, there are two, two reasons. Number one is that there's a fundamental conservatism in this country that opposes change. And there are a lot of players, powerful players, that are opposing that uh, change. You saw what happened recently when California uh, tried to introduce a, such a, a program, and it basically ended up on the floor, not getting anywhere. The U.S. values capitalism and individualism. And this is exemplified by the U.S. motto of life, liberty, and the pursuit of, cap of happiness. 
very different from Canada, where the motto is peace, order, and good government. So let me tell you briefly why you're not going to have such an easy time getting to where Canada is at now and has been for 50 years. Canadian healthcare system started in the 1960s and it started with a doctor strike, basically. In Saskatchewan, um, the premier of the province, who later became the head of the National Democratic Party in, in Canada at the federal level, and it was previously a Baptist minister, decided that Saskatchewan residents should have a healthcare system that was paid for by the government. The doctors walked out, they opposed it. Some of them left the province. What he did was he brought other doctors in from the UK, from the US, other parts of Canada, set up community health centers, healthcare carried on, and literally after just a few weeks, he broke that healthcare strike. He then uh, proved how efficient and effective that system was. And so it wasn't long before other provinces began to say, oh, okay, we'll take a look at that and maybe do that. It took about 10 years altogether until 1973. Alberta was the last one. Uh, the first one was in 62 to get uh, a provincial healthcare system. But once that 10 province system was in place, the federal government then developed something called the National Health Act, which came out in the 1980s. And that set up five principles, which were public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, and accessibility. And that's really has been the bedrock of the Canadian healthcare system. If you ask most Canadians, are you happy with their system? They are. Is it efficient? Yes. Is it effective? Yes. Are the doctors well paid? Yes. And the patients are paying a lot less in the way of, of money. However, for the reasons I mentioned previously, I just don't think that that system is going to work in the United States. The yeah. third option would be a mixed model national health service as in the UK or in Germany or some other countries, which also allow private. And that's been uh, suggested as a model for the U.S. And it could work here. In fact, we already have it. The U.S. already has four of the largest single payer systems in the world, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, TRICARE and um, VA. And so the government has a lot of experience in running a, a single healthcare system. But uh, again, I think that there's going to be uh, a lot of opposition uh, to that as well, because people in this country would tend to think of the public system as really being more of a second class level of care. The UK people don't feel that way, uh, but I suspect that the same reaction would, would be true here. So that brings us to the, uh, the fourth option, which I call the corporatization of healthcare. What uh, the US has done, as opposed to other countries in the world over the past 150 years, is to establish large corporations, which have been very successful, very dominant in their sectors, uh, very profitable for the people that work there, especially the senior management people, and also for their, their investors. Uh, capitalism works in, in that sense. In this country, it's been very effective. And the U.S. has become the most powerful country in the world. So it's hard to speak against that. If you look at the industries uh, of almost any type, you've got three or four, or sometimes five big players. Auto industry, Ford, GM, Chrysler, Stellantis. Airlines, American United, Delta, Southwest. Accounting firms, KPMG, Deloitte, Priceworth, Waterhouse, and RSM, McGladdery. Banks, Bank of America, JPA, uh, Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, retailers, Walmart, uh, Amazon, Costco, and Wal Walgreens Brutes are the, are the big ones there. Computers, Apple, Microsoft, IBM, Hewlett-Packard. You see what I'm getting at? In other words, in most of the industries in this country, you've got from the 
manufacturer of the product or the people that come up with the ideas for the product to the actual person that's using the product, there's a relatively short space as opposed to the very long space that I just mentioned with respect to the healthcare system. So if this country from a government point of view wants to make healthcare work, the best thing for them to do would be to say, let's apply the corporate model to healthcare and we will have a system where you'll have competition on a vertical basis instead of on a horizontal basis. In other words, that dollar won't be going through four or five different filters before it gets to the care you receive. It'll be one company who's responsible, you pay them and they provide you with their care. So you give them your insurance money, they have the hospitals, the hospitals contract with and negotiate uh, hard with the big pharma, with the device companies and so on, in the way they would if, if this was an IT company or a bank or, or, or whatever. That's not happening now in healthcare. And then you get that care to the, uh, uh, sorry, next level would be the physicians and nurses and, and those companies would be competing with each other. So for the best doctors, the best nurses, and then you get uh, to your care. So in the same way that all of those other corporations have been successful in building a relatively lower cost product that is delivered efficiently and effectively, that would be the best way to fix healthcare in this country, I believe. Dr. Orford, thank you so much. Uh, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, let's talk about what you think may be coming next. And also want to ask you a question about your background in uh, public health and how you square the individual medicine perspective, the public health population perspective, and how that applies to the healthcare system. We'll be right back. Are you a busy physician who's unhappy in your current practice but has no time to job search? Or is your administrator overwhelmed with work but you're short-staffed and looking for help? InSync Healthcare Recruiters is here to help. We are Arizona's trusted local resource for healthcare staffing. Our recruiting process is streamlined to respect your schedule. We can save you time, effort, and money. Call us today at 602-284-0991 or visit our website at nsyncrecruiters.com. That's nsync, I-N-S-Y-N-C, recruiters.com. Welcome back to the Arizona Physician Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Orford, and we're talking about the big picture of the U.S. healthcare system. Dr. Orford, please share with us your thoughts on where physicians fit into the healthcare system of today and what leverage they have in creating the system of tomorrow, including the role of organized medicine like medical societies and associations. I remember when I first arrived in the United States from Canada, Alberta in 1988, I met with the executive director of the Minnesota Medical Association shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. uh, just to get an idea about how things work with respect to government and physicians and so on in, in uh, Minnesota, because I'd been, I'd done my residency at Mayo Clinic in the early seventies, uh, but I really hadn't been in any way involved in politics at that time. And what he told me surprised me because in Canada, the medical associations have a direct negotiation with government. And so uh, each of the provinces has a medical association, which has a team that every year uh, sits with the government leaders. And, and I was one of them at the time, uh, one of the government leaders, uh, and, and says, this is, this is how we want to do things. 
And um, wow, this is how we want to, to spend the money this coming year. And in general, that was effective. Occasionally, you would end up with a situation where there was disagreement. And in those cases, it sometimes uh, got close to a strike. In fact, it was a rather serious one in Ontario several years ago. But in general, it's been hidden behind closed doors in terms of the public. They don't know that this is happening. Yeah. So one of the questions I, w- I wanted to ask him is, how do you stand up for physicians' rights with respect to uh, government? Uh, do you have a labor lawyer? And he looked at me quizzically and said, what do you mean a labor lawyer? I said, well, those are the guys that understand the law and they're going to be on your side in terms of your, your negotiations. Looked at me and said, no, I just kind of laughed. Why would we do that? And it was only a few uh, literally weeks later that I realized that the reason that doesn't work in this uh, country is that the whole system right now is so literally fragmented. The doctors are not together and there is nobody to negotiate with because there's over 300 different insurance companies. There's any number of different government programs, as I mentioned, already involved in healthcare. care. Uh, there's any number of people who are in, in the state who are not members of the association, whereas in Canada, you've got 90% plus of every physician in the, in the province is a member, and, and that doesn't exist in the state. So uh, the Canadian healthcare system is much more of a unified physician-led uh, structure with respect to being able to argue for physicians' rights and, and, and pay and so on than it is in this country. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine if the Major League Baseball Players Association had to try to negotiate with 300 different organizations instead of just one owner's group in Major League Baseball. Correct. It would never get done. We'd yeah. never have a baseball season. Dr. Orford, I want to go back to what we talked about the first half of the show was the four visions of healthcare 10 years ago and kind of where we are right now with the more corporate vision and system and how it's probably heading in that direction more so. What would you say are some of the pros and cons for both physicians and for patient care? I think that what you want to do is to shorten the client payment, the client being the patient, and what the client receives, the client receives as a uh, product, which is healthcare, uh, because right now that's too long. And so any of those other methods that I've mentioned are going to solve that problem for you. But the one that is most practical and most consistent with the American culture is, is corporatization. Yeah. And how in your discussions with physicians who are, are still practicing or those coming out of school and starting to practice for the first time, a lot of them are going into hospital systems. A lot of them are uh, choosing to go to entities that are either owned by hospital systems or owned by private equity companies, uh, wholly or in part. And that helps and it hurts, I guess. So it helps uh, physicians from my interactions with them saying that I just want to clock in and clock out, essentially. I don't want to have to worry about all the admin and all the other stuff of running a practice. Whereas family in a prior generation or two generations ago may have done that uh, a lot more often. And I just want to focus on patient care. That's it. Right. And I want to have sort of clear career uh, lateral transfers and know when I'm going to get paid. And and that's it. Whereas a, a, a growing minority, I guess, of physicians want to go out on their own and be in a practice or grow a practice. 
the deck is kind of stacked against them right now with things like a facility fee that hospitals are, are scooping up and then paying a higher salary to those same physicians to come under their umbrella. So what do you hear from physicians and what do you sort of analyze in the system that we have today about why the current system is good for physicians or why it may be bad for them? I think the system that I propose is actually good for physicians uh, because you can compete on the basis of a meritocracy, whereas uh, over the last few years, physicians have been treated more like commodities. If we lose one here, we're just going to pick another one in, in this uh, person's place. And, and, not, and we're going to pay them the same amount of money, basically. So I, I think it's important for physicians to be recognized for their value and not only the value based on what specialty they practice, but on the value as an individual in uh, providing those kind of services. But I think that if I was talking to a younger physician going into the field, I wouldn't advise them against going to medical uh, field because this is one of the best things you can do with your, your life. It's a, it's a great profession to be in. But there are some significant changes coming that are going to affect uh, doctors. Number one, and probably the most important, is new technology. So all of a sudden, we're doing telehealth. We weren't doing that three years ago. And it's going to make a huge, huge impact. In fact, I'm engaged in a, a project in another country right now with respect to introducing a, a telehealth system there. You're going to see more of that. You're going to see less of the state protectionism with respect to practice of medicine, where you have to have a license to practice in other states. And uh, we'll see how all of that uh, progresses. But in addition to, to the administrative aspects of technology, you're also going to have new technology in the sense of wearables, different things that you can do uh, to monitor patients, uh, either patients that are ill or patients that are well from home. Uh, you're going to have apps that are on, on a phone that patients can use, that you can use to communicate with them. So I think that the practice of medicine is going to be uh, quite different in the future. We've seen recently home delivery systems for groceries. When I was a child, uh, we used those systems and then it disappeared for quite a few years. When I was a child, we had um, physicians coming to my home. And uh, you know, if I was sick as a child, we don't see that anymore. And all of a sudden, I suspect with the new system, especially with the telehealth, if I'm a mother with a child that's sick, I won't take that child to the physician's office anymore. I'll call them on my phone and show them the child's rash or mouth or, you know, uh, whatever they want to see. And uh, it's going to be a different kind of uh, healthcare. So, so that'll, that'll evolve. Uh, we're also seeing a huge number of women entering the health system in the practice of medicine. And uh, when I was in medical school, I think class of 120, I had maybe five of them were, were women. And now Mayo Medical School has more than half of our medical students are women at, at, uh, in recent years, for at least the last five years. And I think other medical uh, schools are showing the same thing. And that's great. But it does mean that there's going to be a different balance, if you will, with respect to the way patients are, are handled, because women have a different way of managing uh, patients than, than men often do. Uh, and I won't go into details on that, otherwise I could be accused of being sexist or whatever. But I, I think that it's an important thing uh, to, to have this mixture in, in the healthcare. The third thing that's happening is an aging population. I'm in the, bear, in the baby boom uh, generation. 
And so those of us that were born between around 1945 and 1955, I think it is approximately, uh, are now getting into our retirement years. And another 15 years, will pretty much all be gone. Uh, 20, 25 years, maybe we'll all be gone. And so um, that is going to create a huge both benefit and, and a problem for the healthcare system because those people like me, I run two miles every morning, uh, I eat well, et cetera. And uh, you're going to have a lot of these baby boomers that are much more healthy than older people have ever been in the past. On the other hand, you're going to have a lot of people that are obese and don't exercise and don't eat well and so on that are in this generation. And that's going to create huge strains on the healthcare system as well. That's going to present a bit of a different problem for doctors than we've had recently. And uh, we're also seeing trends in illness that are different from what we've seen before. We've got increases in obesity and STD and autism. Uh, we've got increases in certain kinds of cancers, particularly liver disease and kidney uh, disease and, and, and cancers of those organs. We've got new infectious agents like COVID, uh, like Ebola in Africa not long ago. Uh, we've got E. coli. We've got uh, the um, fungus that's coming up uh, w- with respect to you know, infecting medical equipment uh, that's hard to get rid of. We've got other potential risks, such as pandemics of uh, influenza that are coming in as, as well. There's a great book, by the way, called The Pandemic Century that talks about pandemics of the 20th century. One of the things that became apparent to me on reading that book was that you never know when a pandemic is coming. And when it does hit you, you never know how to deal with it whenever it first hits you. And that was most recently demonstrated uh, with the coronavirus. But we could have another pandemic in four years from now, and it's going to be having to learn the same lessons all over again. So I think physicians are more likely to see more pandemics because there's more antimicrobial resistance. There's more travel. There's greater numbers of people in large cities. So it's the practice of medicine for my generation, the last 40, 50 years that I've been in practice, has actually been, in a sense, relatively enjoyable. Well, it has been enjoyable, the whole thing. But uh, it, it was predictable. In the future, I think uh, medicine is likely to be less predictable than it is uh, than it has been in, in uh, the last 40 years. Dr. Orford, thank you so much. Uh, very thoughtful analysis and predictions of what may come. I wanted to close with a question about your background as a physician and also stud- someone who studied and worked in the public health system. How do you square those two? How, how I know there are a lot of physicians who are getting degrees like Master of Public Health, doctoral degrees in public health. Um, in addition to if they have a degree in business or whatever. But what do you see as the, uh, the push and pull, I guess, between individual medicine and population-based health? And, um, you know, would you encourage other physicians to uh, follow a similar path? I, I definitely would. I think you have to analyze your own personality. You can accomplish a lot more in terms of making people better in a position in public health than you can as an individual physician. I worked in that world for 10 years. After 10 years, I decided to get out of it for three reasons. Number one, I was dealing with politicians on a daily basis, and I found that was not an easy thing to do. Uh, Number two was the press. I was being interviewed probably three or four times a month on TV, radio, newspaper, et cetera. And there's nothing you can say to somebody from the press that they can't use against you. And when you read their story, they're not going to report you accurately. And so uh, I remember asking uh, one of the people I was responding to in the premier's office at the time, what can I do about it? You know, they just 
basically was lying to me and my department. He said, nothing. You just let it go. It's going to pass. Wow. If you if you just bring attention to it, it's, it's going to be more of a story for them. So, uh, but the press were very problematic uh, for me. I mean, I could handle them, but it's just that I, I always felt that I was ending up at the wrong end of the stick whenever I saw the product of their work. Number three was the, the patients or the public in that case. People have great ideas. They want to do great things. And uh, they'd come to me or they'd come to the minister I reported to and say, well, I've got this idea. It's only $20 million. Your budget is $500 million. And uh, you should uh, uh, let me do this. And I'd be told, well, see, see where you can take some money out and get that $20 million. Well, as you know, it's not an easy thing to find $20 million in any budget. And so, uh, yeah, that's a zero sum game. Somebody's going to have to lose constantly having to try to do that was, was very, uh, very worrisome. So I decided I, I really enjoyed doing clinical medicine, practicing with individuals. And so I've done that for the last uh, 35 years of my career. And, uh, not that I didn't enjoy working in public health. I did, uh, but it takes a different kind of a person, more of a, a political individual, more of a numbers, uh, person. And I'm pretty good with math and numbers, but you know, you really need to be able to analyze trends. Uh, you, you need to know things like regression analysis, uh, biostatistics, and, and so on in, in detail in order to do a, a job like that well. Otherwise, you're just coming up with a more of a political opinion, and it's not uh, going to serve the public very well. Dr. Robert Orford, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, and uh, thanks for the insight. We appreciate everything you've done for the U.S. healthcare system. Really glad that another Canadian came down here to help out uh, patients in the U.S. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Help to create the future of healthcare in Maricopa County, Arizona. Get involved by joining the Maricopa County Medical Society at mcmsonline.com slash join. Does your financial advisor help you pursue what matters most? With so much at stake when it comes to protecting everything you've worked so hard to achieve, it never hurts to get a second opinion about your financial future. At Baba Sobers Wealth Management at UBS Financial Services, our approach starts by understanding your life and what you want to accomplish. Then we work together to create a framework design to give you the confidence to do what matters most, no matter what the markets are doing. We want to help ensure you have all you need for today, tomorrow, and for generations to come. For more information about Baba Sobers Wealth Management, visit our website at advisors.ubs.com forward slash Baba Sobers WM. We're members of FINRA and SIPC.